We are Taking the Helm with risk takers who are motivating us to take charge and make things happen with your host, Lynn McLaughlin. Good day, everyone. We have Jessica Santanato with us today. Her story is raw, it is unfiltered and vivid as she shares terrifying experiences she suffered while living a criminal lifestyle, which began when she was a teenager. She is now a TEDx speaker, she's an award-winning author, and she is inspiring courage after her journey to overcome adversity and discover the gift in her pain. Welcome today, Jessica. Thank you so much, Lynn. I appreciate it. Jessica, take us back to your teenage years when you started to venture into the criminal world. So I'm originally from Edmonton, Alberta, and you know I grew up in a really good home. I had my parents who still live together. There's no, there was no abuse of any kind, you know, financial, physical, mental, no drug abuse. And I share that because when people hear my story, usually what goes through their mind is, oh, you must have grown up in some kind of broken home or they usually ask about my parents. So I grew up in a very great home. And at 15, I actually at 14, that was the first time that I had my first alcoholic drink. That was my first taste of alcohol. And I thought it was the cool thing to do. You know, my uncle brought some ciders over and I was like, yeah, this is good. And then I started asking for more and more and, and they thought, okay, not really a big deal. But I was secretly drinking more than they thought. And that carried on when I was 15 years old. And at 15, you know, Edmonton was a great place for me to grow up in. And at the same time, you know, in hindsight, my parents were just being parents. I thought they were being strict. I was bored. I longed for more excitement. Mm. So, you, you know, being the 15-year-old girl I was, and for some reason, it's really interesting in hindsight right now, because I was always into true crime books growing up. <laughs> so wow. it's kind of funny that... I was drawn to that lifestyle. And so being in 10th grade, what happened was I met these twin sisters and they said, oh, there's, you know, this guy and uh, he's on this online chat. You might want to go in there and find him. And from what I knew was he was involved with gangs. And I found out that he was in house arrest for one of the city's most well-known murders. And I got together with him, started talking with him. That became my first boyfriend. And we went on from there. And then 16 years old, you know, my mom, she, she did everything she could in her power to, you know, it, some kind of intervention, mm -hmm. you know, told the school police, high school liaison officer, had many talks with him. And she said, you know, I'm going to send you to Vancouver with her sisters that live there. And she said, until you can prove to be a quote unquote good girl again, you'll have to stay there. So at this point, your mother felt the need to intervene and relocate you to a different province because you were obviously getting yourself into some trouble. What kind of trouble was happening by then? Well, by then she knew that I was hanging out with this guy, that he was my boyfriend. I got involved with drugs the first time at 15 and he was the first person to introduce me to drugs. So when my, I still remember being in the kitchen and my parents both confronted me there. My dad, he's, he loves me. I know that, but he was, he is still a man of very little words. And I remember he was like, did you do drugs? And I wasn't going to lie. I said, yeah. And I was really proud of it at the time, mm -hmm. kind of attitude of what are you going to do about it? 
and I was about to leave the house and I remember my mom seeing her in tears and it really hurt me to see my mom hurt and she said she begged me not to leave and she said if it's not for dad just do it for me and that made me want to stay so at 16 I ended up going out to Vancouver spending the first half of grade 10 there met amazing people stayed on a positive track and I said to my mom you know I really miss my high school friends I please can I come back and she let me come back and it wasn't very long after I came back where I started to hang out with these guys again mm -hmm. you know Edmonton it, it seemed like one of those places where everyone knew each other and so I hung out with more of these gang members I was gang raped one night by several men I knew one or two of the guys in the apartment they had left and then I was left with these other guys in the apartment, which was very terrifying for me at the time because I, I didn't know any of them and I couldn't leave. And then after that incident, I remember feeling like I wasn't as traumatized as people might think. I, I may have been after going through something like that, but I remember having a talk with one of my grade 10 teachers who I really, I really, really loved Mr. Hatch and sitting down with him and sharing with him what had happened and literally his jaw dropped open like he did not know what to say to, what to say to me after I told him what had happened with Ray. And I was thinking in my head, oh, is it that big of a deal? Oh, I'm just so relieved you went to someone you trusted. Yeah, and I shared with him because, you know, my in case I couldn't focus, you know, wanted some excuse just in case, like, this is what happened, just so you should know as my teacher. He was like, look, I think you should really speak to the police liaison officer. And I was like, oh, here we go again. But okay, I respect my teacher. Okay, I'm going to do it. You know, met up with the police officer and the gang unit had come in. They had asked me to point out different guys in the book that I had known. And, you know, at 17, I met somebody who turned out to be a gang leader. I didn't know he was a gang leader, leader at the time. And before I knew it, the high school principal, he found out. And he pulled me into his office one day and he threatened to expel me if I kept hanging out with this guy because he says, you know, I have students to protect. If you're going to hang out with this guy, you can't be here. And I said, that's fine. I'm leaving. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm not saying I'm expelling you, but you know, I have to if you're going to hang out with him. He's like, well, I'll leave. I'll finish somewhere else. And that's what I did. So I'm proud of myself in hindsight that despite everything that I went through, everything I experienced, all the people I hung out with, which were, it was a very different energy and very negative. I still knew I wanted to finish school. And I did, and I did whatever it took to get my high school education. So it was kind of like living a double life, and that carried on, you know, going into, you know, staying with that guy, 17 years old, and I married him when I was 18. He was seven years older than me, and we got married in a federal penitentiary, which is a story in itself. So that was an experience, and we literally built years of our relationship behind bars. And there were a lot of, lot of painful moments, you know, uh, suicide ideation, self-harm, cutting myself, bashing my head into walls, telling myself I was stupid. I believed everything he said. It was a typical abusive relationship in the way that 
when things were great, they were really great. And when things were bad, they were really, really bad. And you describe that time in your book <laughs> quite eloquently, I would say. It's almost as if we're walking beside you during the time where you're, you're playing two roles. He's incarcerated, you're visiting him in jail, and on the other side, you're managing your home. It's funny, kind of like a, a Jekyll and Hyde thing. That's what it reminds me of, of having these two different lives and people did not know, like, and from both sides. You know, the people who I was involved with on the streets, they didn't know my other side of my life and the people that I went to, you know, eventually I got into university. I went to the University of British Columbia, funny enough, got a degree in criminology and psychology, you know, getting my degree, studying what a psychopath is and a sociopath and him, you know, reading the definitions when I got home and him going, oh, that's me. And little did people know, like, I just thought, wow, if people only knew the other mm -hmm. side, right? Jessica, I've had the pleasure of reading your book, Flip the Script. And honestly, your world was a place that I have little understanding of. I could not put that book down. I'm in awe of how you got back up again and again and again, even after your husband tried to kill you. Can you take us back to that time? So what happened was we conceived while he was incarcerated and about a month and a half before our firstborn was due, he got out. And that was a really, really tight, like the parole board did not want to let him go at mm. all because of his violent history. But thank goodness I was there in the room and I got to speak to them and that made the big difference mm. and they let him out. And then the, our second child and the third, he was out for both. So now you have three children. Your husband has been incarcerated, but is now out of prison. The drug dealing is back in operation. And help us understand, Jessica, the fear, what you were feeling at that point in time. Yeah, the fear has always been there for me since I was with him. I quickly saw how ill-tempered he was and how controlling he could be and the jealous type he could be. And, you know, one of the first times, well, the first time he put his hands on me was very shortly after I had met him and he thought I gave him attitude and rolled my eyes when he asked me to get him a newspaper and coffee across the street. And that's when he grabbed the back of my neck and pushed me violently into the wall. And he just, he stopped just before my head went into the wall, but that was enough to shake me up because that was the first time a man had put his hands on me. And on top of that, so violently, so I cried and I, I just knowing that he had that side of him instilled a fear in me. And the more I hung out with him, the more I heard stories from other guys about his violent nature and what he was known for. And, and then I was reading things in the newspaper as well. He was called the enforcer, which he denied, absolutely denied he was called that, that within the gangs. But in the media and by the police, they called him an enforcer. So just hearing these things, and he was on trial for beating some cocaine runners up, which he was let go for. He, he wasn't found guilty. So just knowing this stuff was enough to keep that fear going over the years. And, you know, as I share in my book, too, he was someone that was known for a, a lot of violence and things that I just could not share with the public. And when I did talk to a couple of people after the years, they said, oh, you know, there's domestic violence shelters you can go to. And I'm like, but you don't know who I'm dealing with. Like, this is not just your average Joe Blow. 
it's almost as if he was leading a double life, like, as you described for yourself as well. What you saw at your home, you saw parts of that, but then this was there was this whole other world out there of violence as of part of his role as a gang leader and a drug dealer. Totally, yeah. totally, yeah. And it was interesting because I believe that everybody is love. And what I got to see, even though I don't condone the actions he did and the whatever it was, I still saw someone who was loving. And I know that might sound a little crazy to some people after hearing my story and what I went through and, and experiencing domestic violence. Yeah. Well, as appalling as his actions were towards you as readers in your book, we slowly did connect to some degree with your then husband and father, your children. Um, you know, despite everything that he put you through and the trauma that he caused you, we did feel that Jessica, the way you wrote was brilliant. Um, it really did, did truly help us to understand your path to forgiveness. So it did. Mm. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I did try to write it as vividly as possible. Well, you said, <laughs> yeah, I tell people just heads up. It's pretty raw. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you've got your three children. Um, the violence escalated to the point that he tried to take your life. Correct. So I was working for somebody at the time who was a well-to-do guy. And two nights out of the week, I spent caring for his mom who had Alzheimer's. And one of the nights my husband had called me back home saying when the, one of the girls was bleeding, I didn't think he would hurt the girls, but you know, just maternal instinct kicked in, sped mm -hmm. home. And he asked me to come in the house. I noticed an empty bottle of liquor, which was unusual because he never drank. He wasn't that, he, he wasn't that type to do that. So I just knew something was completely off. And also throughout the years, he had this look in his eyes at times where it was almost like evil had possessed him. That was, that's the easiest way I try that I explain it. It was like this evil had possessed him and nothing you could say or do would ever take him out of it. So I was like, I, my heart sank seeing that look in his eyes. I didn't know what was going on. He said, the girls are okay. Just come in. Next thing I knew, he had punched me in the face. My glasses lens had popped off and he had um, strangled me unconscious twice, telling me he would kill me. He said, I'll kill you. I kill people like you. And the room was spinning. And I remember thinking, I had three thoughts. One, my parents would find my body here. Two, my children won't have their mother. And three, this isn't fair. I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do. Mm. And that last moment, that last thought became the catalyst for what I'm doing today. And it's interesting, the things you think about in microseconds before what could be the end of life. And when I came to, he broke a chair over me and he had come really very slowly and calmly around the corner and he had picked up about an eight inch stainless steel kitchen knife from the foyer ledge and he came towards me and i remember thinking this is the last scene i'm going to see before i die and it was hard because as a mom my three kids are upstairs sleeping yeah, i can't just go around and get them they're home at sleeping oh. they were really young at the eight at that time and the door was so close as well the front door so it was like run by my kids, right? My like it. And I was like, I can't leave my kids. So I'm going to stay and just deal with whatever is coming my way. And I remember thinking, God, I hope this isn't 
hurt too much as he came closer. And I remember he lifted the knife above my head and I squeezed my eyes as tight as I could, praying it wasn't going to hurt too much. And I remember feeling the first stab in and out of my head just really, really quickly. And suddenly he had stopped. And the great thing about going through trauma, if there's a positive side, is that our bodies produce enough adrenaline and endorphins so that you don't feel the pain. So I, nothing was, I didn't know the extent of my injuries, but suddenly he had stopped. And later he told me it was because the rosary he was wearing broke and that snapped him out of his rage where he was like, what the F am I doing? So I've done talks where I share that piece of rosary because if it didn't break at the time, I don't know I would be here speaking to you today, Lynn. I believe that was divine intervention. I definitely had angels or whatever you want to call it looking out for me because after that first stab, I was like, he was, again, that point of no return. So I'm very blessed that that had happened. And he left the house immediately. I didn't know. I thought maybe he found the gun because there was a gun in the house. I thought he was going to take it. He was going to kill himself or he was going to finish me off. But as soon as I heard him take off with the car, that's when I took that moment to run upstairs, grab my kids, grab their blankets and toys. They were so confused, you know, in the middle of the night, young kids. And I said, mommy's hurt. We got to go. I threw them in the car and sped off. And uh, I went to get help. And by, by help, I meant at first I, I thought, let me go to the drugstore and find some bandages to bandage myself up. Oh. And I was like, thinking, Jess, no bandage is going to bandage you up. You need to go to the hospital. You need to get stitches. But that was the mindset. And I thought because of my prior experience with pol- police not helping me when he had threatened to kill me years earlier, this was in BC, I was afraid to go to the police because the first time in Vancouver, when this had happened, the female officer, she threatened to take my kids away if I didn't tell my family in the city what happened, which does not make any sense to me today. And police here that have heard that story, they can't believe that even happened. And they've apologized and said, I'm so sorry. Like, we don't know what went wrong there. Like, that's not supposed to happen. No, it so be- is not. Mm-mm. And I remember making the decision at that time years earlier going, if the police can't help me, nobody can help me. So I went back to the marriage and I was very fortunate that my journey ended up the way it did because I know, and I want to recognize and acknowledge that many women and men end up going back to the people that abuse them because they don't have the resources to help them and things don't work out so well for them. So I was very, very fortunate. You know, they say the time that women that are, um, they're most susceptible to violence is when they're about to leave Mm -hmm. or when they have just left. So for me, I was just very, very thankful it all worked out. So, so he is out somewhere, possibly with a gun. You're not sure if he's coming after you and you are going to find help. And you went to the hospital, correct, Jessica? I ended up going to the hospital eventually. Yes. Left my kids in the car told them not to peek their heads up they were crying I felt so bad leaving my three kids in the dark in the middle of the night in some hospital parking lot and I said mommy will come back you know so I mean hours later I came back stitched up thankfully I 
my injuries weren't bad enough to keep me in the hospital that long. So I took them. I ended up staying with my employer for a bit so that my, because my husband was not arrested right away. So he came back to the family home and I stayed at my employer's place because he lives on a hundred acre farm, multiple properties. He said, just stay here as long as you can. And I was very fortunate to have that job because I was paid so well where I could just have that freedom to just focus on healing. So I stayed there for a good couple of weeks and my husband was afraid that the police were going to come and arrest him for what he did. He was apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry for what happened. And I'm like, you've been through this before. This is a very familiar story of apologies and so taking just him back and apologies. Yeah, just to clarify a question. So you, you were in the hospital, you were taken care of. I'm sure they did a police report or called the police to do a report at that time. And yet he's they didn't. Still, they did not? They didn't. And they gave me the choice, which the police said that should not have happened. And so the doc, the, the triage nurse said, do you want to press charges? And I said, no. Okay, fine. The doctor came in, saw all my injuries. He said, do you want me to call the police? I said, no. Okay, so they left it up to me. So he was not charged. The police told me there should not have been a question, they should have called, especially with children involved. So, just to put this in context, your children are in the car, you're frightened for them. Your husband has just tried to murder you, you are traumatized. You make the decision at that point in time that you are not laying charges, and that is not uncommon for people who suffered spousal abuse over time. It took three months for him to be arrested. And that was only because a psychologist that I was seeing through victim services, again, the attack happened in a different jurisdiction than where it was initially reported. So the police in the jurisdiction that it was reported said, well, you have to go back to your own city and report it there. But what we can do is offer you victim services. So the psychologist I saw, really great woman, Tina, she said one day, why don't you go to the police? say, what would happen if I report this? I don't want to officially report it, but what would happen if I do? And I remember going to work one day, I already drove past headquarters. And again, divine intervention, something literally took hold of the steering wheel and turned it around. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I guess Mm -hmm. I'm going back to headquarters. (laughs) And I remember walking in and, and seeing a police officer, a female officer at the front. I'm like, great. Here we go again, right? Memories Mm. of Vancouver. I told her what happened. She goes, let me go speak to my supervisor. I'll be back. She came back. She said, I'm so sorry. Now that the ball's been dropped, we have to go arrest him. And I remember freaking out going, you can't arrest him. You don't know who who he is. He's going to come after me. He's going to kill me. You don't like, they ran his report. Sure enough, they saw his whole violent history, his entire criminal record. So they brought a whole team to go arrest him. They promised me the kids would not see him being arrested, but they did, at least the oldest. I mean, and the trauma, the post, post-trauma post effects of everything. That I mean, that's a whole conversation in itself. Absolutely. For your children and as well as you. Mm-hmm. For my children and, and for me. And so he was arrested. He stayed there for several months before I... Well, he stayed there for, not for several months, but he stayed there for like, maybe like a month before I started to visit him secretly. And then I brought the kids, 
I started to speak with him. I said, I'm going to recant my statement, say I lied about the whole thing, get you out of jail. We're going to be happily ever after again, right? It's, it, again, in hindsight, it was like, what was I thinking? And it wasn't until a few months after that where, because he thought, great, we're going to, you know, he, his, in his mind, he was like, great, she's going to get me out of jail. Everything's going to be resolved. And then towards the end of that year, I saw my, my lawyers and they said, they couldn't believe I went to see him secretly. And they had a come to Jesus talk with me. And they said, Jess, if you want us to represent you, you can't keep going to see him. He's not a good husband. He's not a good father. And it was just something about the way they said it that had me go, oh, like something about it just shook me up a little bit. And I think it was from them coming as relatively young fathers and husbands themselves. And so I, I, and I remember my employer, he said, look, you started something, you need to finish it. So it was a combination of those conversations that had me go, that's it. I, I, I can't continue this way. And then seeing my kids getting older, I didn't want my son thinking it was okay for a man to hit a woman and then, you know, just come, go back with her. No big deal. No consequences. And same with my girls. So I was like, I have to do this for my kids. I have to do it for myself. And that was it. Left him there. No more contact. Nothing. And from what I heard, he was absolutely livid and he had planned to get someone to kill me or kill me me himself when he got out but thankfully he stayed incarcerated for a period of time until he was actually released where he got that time to just calm down simmer down which later he acknowledged like it was good I had that time because I was really really mad and then he was okay and I remember the time when he was going to be released and I freaked out because the police had me in hiding right? They locked down my place. They had me, my place flagged priority. My kids were ghosted in the system, so nobody could find them. And my lawyer told me, he's about to be released. You need to know this. And immediately I thought, I, am, I just need to run. Where can I claim refugee status? I remember Googling different countries where I can claim refugee status, Australia, places in the States, Europe. And my mom even said, Jess, you just run. Wherever you run, I don't care. Just let me know whenever you can, but just run. And the police told me, because I was trying to find my options, right? And the police said, if you run with your kids, we'll have you arrested because under the eyes of the law, they did nothing wrong to them. He did nothing wrong to them. Okay. Whoa. I'm at a loss for words. I mean, the trauma alone of the night where he attempted to kill you affected your children. I'm just having so many head-shaking moments. I mean, pardon me, that just doesn't make any sense. Did the Children's Aid Society intervene to demand and enforce uh, supervised visits? They said under the laws, technically, he has every right to see his children. He did nothing to them. So, and I was like, okay, this is really just, I'm sorry, but it just sounds really stupid to me that I'm now supposed to bring my kids to some center near the courthouse so that he could see them and do it kind of like a trade-off when he could be easily watching me or having someone hide in the parking lot. I don't understand this. Uh, I had this thought, and I call it a download. Something just said, Jess, if you run now, you're going to run for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that was a profound moment for me because I realized how much truth there was in that statement for me. And I was like, 
do I want to keep running for the rest of my life? Like at, up to that point, I was exhausted from that lifestyle, from hiding from him, from hiding from his enemies, from hiding from the police. Like I was exhausted. That being in a criminal lifestyle is very exhausting. Can I tell you that? So I, I had a friend at the time who was into, she was a spiritual teacher and she grabbed my hand one day and she said, Jess, you just need to trust. You just need to trust. And I thought she was absolutely out of her mind. I'm like, what are you talking about? Do you know who he is? She's like, you just need to trust. Did not understand a word what that meant till years later. Mm. But I put faith that everything would be okay. And I told his lawyer, okay, I'll let him see the kids, but I have to talk to him first. Him and I had our first conversation and something inside of me, it was just a gut feeling, told me everything was going to be okay. Mm. We met up, him and I, before we met, the, met up with the kids and him. And the kids met him one time at uh, Palladium. Had a great day with him. And he was back and forth between Ontario and Alberta because his stepdad was there. And, you know, he just had more contacts out there. So I remember we had the best communication we ever had in our entire relationship after he got released out of prison. So he came out again. We started to talk best communication. It turns out he met somebody new. So what happened was I had this tattoo on my ring finger and it was a heart with our initials and I was dating someone at the time. And that guy kept looking at my finger Mm -hmm. and he didn't say anything, but I was like, Oh, this could be an issue. So my husband, he said, openly he's like look if you want the divorce like I don't know what's going to happen neither of us saw a need for divorce right away so he said but he said if you do want a divorce just let me know I'll fly there we'll sign the papers no big deal I said okay cool and after I saw the guy I was dating kept looking at my finger I was like talk to talk to my husband on phone I said you know I think I do want that divorce he said no problem sweetheart just you know I'll come back we'll sign the papers that well he was supposed to come back that weekend and it was the day before my oldest daughter's birthday. And my, his stepdad called me saying that he was found dead on his dad's sofa that morning. I was in complete shock because he did not show any signs of sickness. He did tell me a couple of days prior to his death that he was feeling a tightness in his chest. And, you know, I said, go see a doctor, you know, get, get, get checked out. But there was nothing that indicated otherwise. It was just a huge shock that he was just gone like that, especially where we had spoken about, you know, I said, I'm so happy you're in the kids' life, lives again, right? Especially going through the teenage years, all that. And then for him to be gone all of a sudden, it was like, what? Like, you know, just utter shock. And I remember telling the kids that night, what happened you know my oldest screamed and she ran out of the room my son you know cried it looked like someone had stabbed him in the stomach when I told him and then my youngest cried she didn't know what understand what was going on but because the other two were crying she started to cry well your father will always be your father and all the good and the bad that might come with that and they had already experienced so much trauma I mean yeah they experienced a lot oh yeah a lot and now they lost their father at such a young age so a lot of major transitions for them in a short period of time. And, you know, I, 
I, I went back to Edmonton to do his eulogy and his funeral because I knew no one else was going to do it. There was a room full of gangsters at the back of the room that showed up. And I took that opportunity to share a message with them indirectly <laughs> without preaching to them, but sharing how a life can be transformed and sharing also the love that he was and how much he cared for people. And Edmonton was huge closure for me because shortly before he, my husband passed away, I forgave him in, in person. And it wasn't an, a question of, you know, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? It was just something I knew I had to do for me to forgive him. And when I say forgive, I mean true forgiveness where there is, and there was, and still is no resentment to what he did. And I've had people say, how could you forgive someone that tried to kill you, especially your husband? So forgiving him was huge for me. And then at his funeral, the, the day prior to his funeral, I forgave the guy who held up a gun to me for not having sex with him when I was 16. He was also involved with gangs and he was there. And then the guy who instigated the gang rape showed up at the funeral and I forgave him after the funeral because a bunch of us went out to go eat and I requested a meeting with his bodyguard. And I thought, this is like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And this could be such a bad mistake, but I just need to do this for me. And both of them, I remember them looking at me like a human being as an equal for the first time. And I got so much closure forgiving both of them as well as having forgiven my husband. And so now I share the message of forgiveness wherever I go because resentment is such a huge poison in our body that we voluntarily sign up for. That's the way I see resentment. Mm -hmm. And but the process to get to forgiveness has got to be heart-wrenching. Yeah, it's, it's a process. And what I tell people is, first it starts with a choice. And also people typically say forgiveness is hard. And what I say to that is, if you say forgiveness is hard, that becomes the story you live into because words are so powerful. So if you mm -hmm. say forgiveness is hard, well, then you're making that process even more difficult than it can be. Mm -hmm. Are there challenging moments? Sure, there are. And, um, but if you can look at it not as hard, but as a challenge that's, that you can get through and that on the other side is this beautiful reward of feeling free and just reconnecting to love, which we all are. Um, wow. it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And you can't put a price tag on that. Oh, I want to read something, one of your quotes, Jessica, because it just fits sure. so beautifully here. You say, it stands to reason that if we have more people thinking and acting out of love, we should expect to see a tipping point after which society is able to naturally operate out of love. Yes. There yeah, you go. Beautiful. It's beautiful. You rose to a level of conscious leadership and humanitarian work by the very young age of 35 after all of these horrific experiences. You forgave those people who caused you harm. Um, and now um, you're being recognized by your vivid storytelling and communication. Let's jump in and talk about the story sharing community that you created called Flip the Script, same title as your book. Correct. Where men uh, with criminal histories have platforms to share their stories without judgment. What's that look like? And is that based in Toronto, I believe? It's based in Toronto, technically Vaughan. So just outside of Toronto. Yeah. And a short rewinder to provide some context to that. When I was healing from the attack, I remember looking outside at my employer's beautiful farm, 
just all this greenery and just thinking I'm, when I heal up, I'm going to give back to the world. And I know that sounds like such a massive statement to, to tell oneself, but I just remember this feeling of like, I don't know how that's going to look like, but I know I'm going to give back to the world somehow. No idea would look like this. So I started actually working with young leaders in Africa before Flip the Script was born. And so Flip the Script is a story sharing community where people share their stories of overcoming adversity. So we have public events every month in Vaughan now virtually with COVID and all of the proceeds support our story sharing program called from the streets to the stage for men with criminal histories and or drug addiction histories. And that gives them a platform to share their stories. A lot of them come to our community for the first time to share publicly because they've kept their stories so closely and hidden for so long. So what they do in the program is they are able to take their life stories, their experiences, see it from a different perspective, reconnect a purpose and share it in a succinct 10 minute frame. And then they can go on and then share it either through music or now through theater because we've now partnered with other organizations. Yeah. So we're definitely expanding and that's exciting and it feels really great. And I have the unique experience of being married to somebody who was in the criminal world where I got to see a different man than what everyone else saw. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I saw love. And although I don't condone the things he did, I had compassion and empathy for the boy who grew up in a single parent home, was beaten as a child, was on welfare as a child. You know, his dad, biological dad only came back into his life to say, hey, deal these drugs for me. So how can I blame somebody that experienced that and these cycles keep going, right? There's, there's generational trauma. So where does that cycle stop? And yet my work with men over the years, because I've done other work as well, I've re- recognized how much men keep pain inside that they can't even share with their closest partners because there's this, this shame of men have to be tough and the providers and the protectors and they can't show any signs of vulnerability and weakness. And yet when a man has that space to share, he can really grow. And there's just this, I call it this twinkle in a man's eyes. And I don't know how else to explain it, but it, they just light up and there's an opening for, to create something new in their life now because they can share. And it's such a heavy weight to carry over the years, this pain that you haven't been able to share with anybody. So flip the script gives them that opportunity to do so. Um, and we call it flip the script because it's flipping the narrative, flipping the perspective on your experiences instead of like, poor me, why did this happen? It's yeah. like, oh, I, you know, again, I talk about the gift and the pain. There's a gift in the pain if we're brave enough to look. So what was this experience here? To, to, what is it teaching me? What did it teach me? What was the lesson I'm supposed to learn in this? And if you can look at it that way, then how can you fault it? How can you have right. a pity party. Yeah, you open right. up new opportunities for yourself. Exactly. It's a very powerful statement for us to really think about, Jessica. I think it would be most difficult for victims. But whoever we are, whatever our history, we really each have a life. We are human beings after all. And you are giving us an opportunity to take a step back and maybe think about this from a different mindset. And we thank you for that. I appreciate that. And 
also what I was going to say is, you know, with the stories, it helps us understand again that empathy and compassion because people only see the crime somebody committed or they see someone as a drug addict but how did they get to that point and did you watch the joker lynn the, the movie the, the movie uh yeah. the most recent one no but i mean i think it's a remake anyway <laughs> yeah the, well i i personally really really love the latest one with joaquin phoenix and it's one of those things where i share with people you might not agree with what joker did However, with the great storytelling they did in the movie, you can understand how he got to that level of madness. But many people aren't willing to hear the stories of men who have criminal histories and drug addiction histories, and that's what I'm here to help share. If we have an understanding of why we behave in a certain way or think or respond in a certain way, then we can change it. If we don't have an understanding, if we're not even aware, then we're not going to be able to change that. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. I'd like to read an excerpt, a very, very powerful excerpt from your book, okay? It's at the very, very beginning, which is part of the reason I was intrigued and just kept turning those pages. <laughs> Dear God, thank you for every breakdown, tear, moment of heartache, freak out session, and time I've looked death in the eye. Thank you for another day alive in this delicious world. Thank you for the experiences that have helped my soul to reveal its light. Thank you for the overflowing abundance that flows my way each day. Jessica, those experiencing adversity, trauma, and emotional pain, listening to that quote from the book are, are, are thinking many of them, oh my gosh, how do I get to where she is? How can they find a way to move forward to a place of acceptance and peace in their lives? What, what would you suggest would be a first step? Forgiveness. Mm -hmm. For me, it starts with forgiveness. Forgiveness. We think of forgiving others more importantly, it's about forgiving ourselves for the things that we may regret or feel guilty about or shameful about. And what I've seen from a lot of people I've spoken to is people of all walks of life hold different things where they can forgive themselves for. So I would say start there because there's a level of freedom one experiences when they do forgive. and it's also at the same time a loaded question because the attack for, for me that happened in 2010. And so it's just been an ongoing process and who I am today is different, very different than who I was two, even two years ago. So it's been layers and being committed to self-development for me, going on a spiritual path has made a big difference for myself and reconnecting to, universal laws and my creator and where, where I stand, if you want to call it in, the, in this lifetime. So, you know, delving into books and audios and courses and ways to also empower other people. I have found that's been a selfless way for me to just keep going in life. And it's given me, it not given me, it's reconnected me to purpose. And, you know, my kids have always been my driving force moving forward. And not everyone has an external motivator like that. But if I would say reconnecting to purpose, because if you, there's no purpose in life, then what's the point? Mm -hmm. Right. So, again, I feel like it's a loaded question. Like uh, there's no right or wrong step to move forward with. Like, how do I overcome my situation? Everybody's unique. But if I was to say, I would go with forgiveness, start with forgiveness, mm -hmm. forgive other people and forgive yourself. And when I say other people, 
sometimes individuals can get triggered and they say, but I don't want to talk to that person or they're not in my life anymore. And I say, just write it down on a piece of paper like you are writing to them and then you can burn it. And mm -hmm. that in itself makes a difference. Brilliant, brilliant. And so you are remarried, happily remarried, and your your children yeah. are doing your children are doing very well. And I think another thing for people to think of, there's hope. There's hope for the future. There is something ahead for you. Yes, there's always hope. You, whatever your circumstance right now, you can always create something new in your life. And yes, happily married and very blessed to have somebody who accepts my past, accepts the kids and. The kids, you know, the, there's still things that come up and the anniversary of my husband, first husband's passing was just a few days ago. Mm. So, you know, we still honor that. We still have conversations. I gave my oldest who just turned 18, I gave her my book to read, flip the script. And I was like a little nervous going, just oh, so yeah, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's probably something you don't want to know about your dad, but you're 18 now, like you're free to do it. She goes, well, I don't know if I'm ready just yet, but. So she's got it tucked on the side. Yeah, but definitely blessed right now. And, you know, I, I can't complain. I look around every day and I'm alive. I have my three kids. I'm getting to support people who are going through experiences that I went through or my husband went through. So oh, Jessica, yeah. your voice, you have a very strong voice, which is now being heard. And I thank you for bringing all, all of us to a new level of understanding today. Thank you so much, Len, for having me. I so appreciate having this platform to share my story. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, the best is to go to my website at Jessica Santonato, and that is S-A-N-T-O-N-A-T-O, jessicasantonato.com. I am so proud of all of the guests who have been here with us on Taking the Helm since we launched in February. We've met remarkably inspiring people like Jessica who really are change agents, helping us see things in a different way and moving us in a different direction. We're launching a new episode now every Saturday. And if you'd like to sponsor one, I'd love to hear from you. And on that note, have a safe and healthy day, everyone. Thanks for listening. For more episodes learning from people who are steering us in the right direction, visit lynnmclaughlin.com or subscribe to this podcast feed.